1: Welcome to Cutting the Curd, your bi weekly dairy dispatch sponsored by TechServe. Uh, We're on Heritage Radio Network, www.heritageradionetwork.com, and our producers today are Nat Wiener and Jack Inslee. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and my guest co host for today's talk is uh, Heather Box, who, in addition to being one of my best friends, is a political guru. Voter rights advocate and contributor to the Huffington Post. Thanks for being on the show, Heather. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, And we're also joined in the studio today by Ann Mendelson, famous Ann Mendelson, who uh, authored a book entitled Milk, the surprising story of milk through the ages. Now, there are a few things of more political importance today than farming. However, we tend to hear very little about our country's farmscape beyond a few main commodity foods. Milk has been in the news a lot lately, as farmers from Maine to California face falling milk prices and a slow economy. We're going to talk a bit today about how milk came to be such a huge force in global markets, but also how humans and dairy animals have co-evolved over the millennia. Uh, Anne's book, Milk, uh, the Surprising Story of Milk Through the Ages, is really multifaceted. In addition to being a wonderful treasure trove of milk-based recipes from all around the world... It's a fascinating chronicle of how humans have used milk through the ages. The funny thing is, and I learned this from Anne's book, um, up until quite recently, fluid milk as we know it today was never a major part of most people's diets. Ms. Mendelssohn's book illustrates how milk has evolved to be the commodity that it is today and the changes that we, the cows, and the dairy industry at large have undergone in the past few centuries. Uh, thanks for being with us today on Heritage Radio Network, Anne. Thanks for having me. Um, So, just uh, first things first, a little intro, Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write a book about milk?
2: Well, I'm not sure how I came to write a a book about milk um, either, except that I grew up in a part of this country where there used to be a lot of cows, there used to be a lot of little mixed farms, including a dairy component guys would have some apple trees, they would have some pigs, they would have some chickens, uh, they would grow some tomatoes, they would uh, have some cows and milk them. Um, And a landscape with farms like that is a wonderful place to grow up in. Needless to say, it's all gone now. Um, can, I, can I ask suburbia. where that was? It was in southeastern uh, south Pennsylvania, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Okay. And um, it was at one time pretty heavily Mennonite. But by the time I was growing up there, it was starting to turn into suburbia. And now it's just sort of wall-to-wall, you know, chain drugstores and little strip malls and hardly anything left of the farms.
1: Okay. And so when, when you were young, would you visit those farms and uh, and sort of, you know, partake of the milk and other stuff that was being produced there? Is that... um,
2: well, we lived right down the road, about an eighth of a mile from Garrett Kaiser's farm. Um, and I remember trying to milk Mr. Kaiser's um, cows. <laughs> And I remember not getting very far, and I also remember (laughs) the farm being auctioned off when I was, like, maybe 10 or 11, Uh, and it was turned into, like, a a little specialty place where they raised peacocks and ornamental pheasants and anything but working animals. And... That was kind of interesting growing up next to all
1: these peacocks yelling, but I I preferred listening to the cows. Now, I remember, and we were talking a bit before the show, and you said that just as much as you love the, um, you know, the flavor of milk and milk as a as an ingredient in cooking, you love... Um, the animals, which I can certainly identify with I love, um, you know, being a cheesemonger I love cows, sheep, and goats But there is something very special about cows They're kind of like noble animals in a way I, I like them all But to me, cows have beautiful
2: faces And cows look like majestic animals They have that You can see why people worshipped
1: them at one time so that's actually that's an interesting thing because in your book you you include recipes from all across the world and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how different cultures use milk and milk products and I don't know if you noticed any interesting trends as that as far as uh, you know if cows were revered in one country or one culture versus another um, how that played into their their use of dairy. Um, I'm not
2: sure whether it does or not. Um. There are an awful lot of cultures where nobody ever, ever thought of drinking milk. Um, there, I mean, parts of uh, Southeast Asia, for example, um, Latin, um, South America, North America before Columbus, nobody ever thought of drinking another animal's milk, which is a very strange thing to do when you when you stop to consider it. <laughs> um, Here's this secretion of another critter, um, and we people consume that secretion. There isn't any other animal that does this. It's really (laughs) a a curious fact when you stop to consider it. Um, But cows were probably not domesticated as soon as um, goats and sheep, which were smaller, they were easier to handle without getting killed. Um, and cattle are very fierce animals, or used to be before they were bred to be um pretty docile um, so we're not dealing with the same kind of animals as our ice age ancestors or you know people back in eight thousand b c or whenever they first got the idea. Um, goats and sheep were domesticated first um They're um uh, an easier size to tangle with, and the milk has an interesting quality all in itself, without uh, anything being done to it there 's a characteristic taste of goat 's milk and even more of sheep 's milk uh, because it 's concentrated um, cow 's milk is blander it there 's less of a flavor that you can put a name to um, it 's just a more neutral kind of a milk. Um, So people in these regions where um, the animals were first domesticated, these are very hot regions, this is um, the Middle East, Um, Turkey, uh, what is now Iran and Iraq, these places have blistering hot summers. Mm -hmm. And so the time when the animals are giving the most milk because they would give birth seasonally in the spring – Um, That time is exactly when the milk goes sour most quickly once it's taken from the animal. So you have, like, instant yogurt. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have fresh milk that's going to just stay fresh forever because nobody had invented refrigerators. Um, You have milk that wants to turn into something else almost as soon as it leaves the cow or the goat or the sheep or whatever.
1: So you would say yogurt would uh, sort of be the uh, the sort of primordial milk food that everybody uh, consumed. Yes, yes, definitely. That's really uh, that's really interesting. Well, when we come back, we're going to take a a, a quick break in a minute. But when we come back, it would be really interesting to hear then how we moved from, you know, uh, trying to keep milk from going sour or, you know, from using soured milk, I'm sorry, as a, as a food, uh, be it yogurt or, um, buttermilk or, you know, cheese or anything else. Um, how we went from that to starting to drink, uh, fresh milk, which I found to be one of the most compelling parts of your book. Um, so I think we're going to take a very quick break. And, uh, when we come back, we'll talk about the rise of drinking milk. Back to uh, Heritage Radio Network. This is uh, Cutting the Curd uh, with Anne Saxelby and Anne Mendelson and Heather Box. Uh, we're here today talking with Anne Mendelson about her book Milk: The Surprising Story of Milk Throughout the Ages. Um, and we'd like to thank our sponsor Texer, for uh, providing support for this wonderful radio network. So, Anne, how did we go from being yogurt eaters to milk drinkers?
2: Well, there's always been fresh milk um, because that's how it comes out of the cow. Uh, So obviously somebody experimented first with, uh, uh, let's say they managed to subdue a nanny goat. One guy said, okay, Joe, you take the front end, I'll take the back end, and they got her down and managed to yank on a teat long enough to figure out that the stuff that was coming out of it was okay, <laughs> it might be useful for food. Um, although it did go sour when, once they had gotten around to doing the thing more systematically. And um, the the idea of... Those climates, you know, Turkey in midsummer, Iraq, Iran, uh, the idea was not, okay, we're going to figure out how to keep milk fresh, because that would have been futile. Um, But when milking got to colder climates, when it got to northern Europe, um, the eastern parts, you know, like uh, northern Russia, um, northwestern Europe, uh, then there was more... Um, there was there were cooler temperatures. There was a little more window uh, for keeping the milk fresh longer. Still, it would go sour um, maybe in a day instead of a few hours. But it would go sour until refrigeration was developed, and uh, which didn't happen until which didn't happen until the middle middle 19th century.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Um, Before then, you were really fighting uh, a battle uh, to get the milk to consumers uh, in a fresh, unsoured state. The only way you could do it in cities was to have the animals in the city.
1: Um, Oh, um, well, that's a really interesting thing. I definitely want to talk about milk. In New York City specifically, because I know that it's really fascinating. But we have a, a caller on the line um, who has a question. I'm assuming. Yes. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi.
0: Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. I can. Great. Uh, yeah, I was wondering why, of all the types of milk that people drink um, in the states, in Europe they drink buffalo milk, but they we don't drink buffalo milk here at all. And is there a is there a good explanation for that or?
2: Not really. Um, The explanation is just that buffaloes were a kind of a hard animal to raise um, outside the subtropics or tropics until pretty recently. Um, They got as far as Italy, the Po Valley, um, where mozzarella cheese from, from buffalo milk has been just famous for a long time. Um, but the buffaloes, they really need water. Um, they need um, more access to shade. They're, they're a harder animal to take care of. Although there is a buffalo dairy, maybe, maybe Anne Saxelby knows more about this than I do. There is a buffalo dairy in Vermont, and there might be one or two in California where they have figured out um, how to make the animals
1: happy um, without tropical conditions. Um, do you know anything? Um, yeah, well, th- the only one that I knew of was the Woodstock Water Buffalo Company, which I think has changed names uh, since then. But um, they I, I never drank buffalo milk, but I had the buffalo yogurt, which was just incredible. It was mm-hmm. like... You know, eating uh, clotted cream basically—it was so rich and delicious. Uh-huh. I would imagine that the milk would be really, really fine.
2: They give—they um, give extremely rich milk. The only—the only dairy animal that gives richer milk is a sheep, and the sheep gives you know like maybe a quarter to a day, and um, water buffaloes can give gallons a day, and it's very rich. It's. It's rich in butterfat, which is the thing that really gives milk flavor. And I think that probably there's going to be more experiments with water buffaloes in this country,
1: but it isn't happening on a big scale yet. Well, it sounds like a dairyman or cheesemaker's dream to have gallons of milk with that high butterfat versus quarts, because, yeah, sheep are... Sheep milk is great, too, but it, it is a hot commodity. Sheep produce very little milk. so. Yeah, um, I, I actually had a question about that. Is there, are there other animals besides sheep and goat and buffalo and cows that people make drink the milk out of?
2: Uh, yes. Um, where milking evolved, they, they pretty much used the milk of any ruminant or thing, kind of like a ruminant, um, that
1: gave milk. Can you explain Um, ruminant really quick, just for our listeners? I don't know if everyone knows what a ruminant is. I know.
2: (laughs) Well, ruminants ruminate. That is, they they eat grass, um, grass maybe leaves, uh, and they chew the cud. That is, um, they swallow the grass. The the grass goes down into this complicated system of stomachs. Uh, The grass comes up again um, from the first stomach as... Um, cud, uh, the cow, eats as much as she can, any other animal, um, the goat, the sheep, the whatever. Um, you have to really be serious about eating grass to get enough of it to give you energy for the day. So you swallow it as fast as you can. Um, then you regurgitate it as cud. Uh, you swallow it. Um, You chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it, Um, and eventually you swallow it again, and it goes down into this complicated system of stomachs uh, that breaks down the cellulose, the fiber, um, in the grasses that we people could not digest. Um, As it progresses through this, I guess it's four-chambered arrangement of stomachs, um, gradually, it's broken down to a form where it can be absorbed into the cow's bloodstream um, and where it's a food that we could digest, uh,
1: where we're unable to digest the original grass. Um, okay, so, so we were talking about different kinds of milk. So there is, there's there's cow, sheep, goat, buffalo, like mm-hmm. we said. Um, and camels.
2: Uh, which are not exactly ruminants because they don't have the four-chambered stomach, but they do kind of the same thing with the three-chambered stomach.
1: Wow. That's uh, very, very interesting.
2: Uh, There are horses. uh, There are donkeys. um, And these are not ruminants, but they also have the capacity to digest grass. And all of these um, people just routinely used the milk of all of these in the Middle East, the Silk Road, um all those parts of the world um where the most interesting um milk culinary traditions arose.
1: Interesting. Can you just maybe name a couple of different recipes in your book that would uh that might have been used at one time with those types of milk?
2: Um well I have if I do say so myself, I have fairly clear directions for making yogurt at home. Mm-hmm. And you could have made yogurt from any of those. Um, from some of them, you could have, ch- you could have um, churned butter also, the buffalo um, and the, the cow and probably the sheep. Um, I've left out one animal uh, which didn't come from that part of the world, Um, But it's said to give really great milk, and people are experimenting with it also um, in this country. Um, It's yaks, Tibetan Uh yaks. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So you can't make yogurt with milk from, like, a human? I don't know whether anybody's trying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, it would be really, really different because human milk has an awful lot more lactose, more milk sugar, than that from cows or these other animals.
1: uh
2: uh-huh. I oh, know. Well, <laughs> horse's milk has a lot of lactose. Yeah, what happens when you have the lactose is you have an alcoholic—it it tends to make an alcoholic fermentation, not just this lactic acid bacteria fermentation that turns the milk sour— uh, but one a carbon dioxide fermentation that actually ends up with a certain amount of alcohol, oh. and people in silk Road countries, um, especially the ones that used horses, you know mare 's milk uh, they they made a lot of this uh, kumis, which is part sour and part effervescent. I have not ever had kumas. The real thing from mare's milk, um, people say that you either love it or hate it.
1: Well, I just one quick aside. There's a beer company in Japan called the Hitachino Beer Company, and um, they make a lactose stout. Um, So that makes sense, now that you say that lactose readily ferments, Uh that they would try that as a a beer-making ingredient. Do you know what Um, it's like? Uh, it's delicious. Oh, anyone who hasn't tried it, yeah, it's the lactose stout from the Hitachino Beer Company. They've got this great little owl on the label. It's tough to miss. Um, but I'm actually I'm getting a sign. I think uh, we have a we have another caller on the line.
0: And this is your father calling from Chicago. Hi, Dad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How I are am, you?
0: I am. I am fascinated by this, and I'd like to ask Ann a question, which is what has led her to spend as much time as she has uh, studying this whole topic of milk. I'm fascinated by this.
2: Well, it's partly that I always liked those critters when I was a kid, and I'm glad that I grew up in farms where they were visible just down the road every day. Um, When I moved away from that part of Pennsylvania, I found that, you know, other people don't live like that. And... um, other people don't really seem to know that milk originally came from an animal instead of a supermarket. And as the years went on, I I felt as if the milk, the, the stuff that was being offered to us to drink under the name of milk, was getting more and more unreal. And After a certain amount of unreality had gone by, (laughs) I thought, hey, things are maybe turning around a little, because there were starting to be small dairies, like within the last 10, 15 or so years, um, where they treat the cows well, where they're not trying to factory farm. Um, There are these small dairies with maybe Jersey cows or some other breed that you don't see all the time, um, where they care about the quality of the milk. And to me, it was just like, hallelujah, what took them so long? And um, I think that is worth, worth pointing out, because I'm not the only person who would like to be able to buy really good milk.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that is a that's a great point. I think for myself, and I don't know about you, Heather, but I grew up drinking milk from a supermarket as well. Yeah, me too. So lots of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to take another uh, very uh, quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, talk again a little bit about milk in New York City and uh, and wrap up our talk with Ann Mendelson, author of Milk, The Surprising Story of Milk Through the Ages.
0: I just want to know about
1: your lives. I, heard people fall. I heard some you got your families living in cages and cold.
2: Some just stay the and- Way past the age of old. Is this true? Please let me talk to you. I just wanna know about the rooms behind your minds. Do I see a vacuum there, or am I growing blind? Or is it just a remains for vibrations?
1: Welcome back to the Heritage Radio Network. This is Cutting the Curd. Uh, my name is Ann Saxelby. My co host is Heather Box. And our guest today is Ann Mendelson. Um, so, getting back to this topic of real milk and what real milk tastes like, there's a lot of debate, and there's a lot of, frankly, there are a lot of options out there right now for people to buy different kinds of milk. You hear about people going to supermarkets and there's organic milk and there's grass-fed milk and there's hormone-free milk and all these different kind of confusing labels. And I think one of the best parts of your book is that you never take a stance. Uh, you're, you allow for the fact that there's a lot of gray in this new kind of farm scape that, we, that we're encountering. It's not just good or bad, or big agribusiness, or small backyard cow. Um, Is there any advice that you can offer to people out there about choosing a good source of milk?
2: I would, as much as possible, and obviously this depends where you live, but as much as possible, I would look for milk from small dairies um, in your own part of the country. Uh, they They really do exist more than they used to it 's happening in well it 's been happening in New England for a while it 's happening in new york state um, it 's happening in many of the northeastern states and even the Midwest that used to be totally uh just these mammoth mammoth dairies. There is starting to be a lot of small-scale dairying, and people are bottling milk in, in real bottles. Um, they're selling it often unhomogenized, which tastes wonderful. I um, know well, Anne, maybe you can say what the difference to you is between tasting homogenized and unhomogenized milk.
1: Oh, unhomogenized is, is, is hands down. Yeah. Superior. Um, I didn't, I didn't really know not having grown up in, uh, uh, you know, having grown up gone, going to supermarkets and uh, having most of my food from there, it's been sort of a steep learning curve for me, you know, a little bit later in life, figuring all this stuff out. And I remember one of the first cheese places I went to visit was the Tamales Bay. Uh, well it was in Tamales Bay. It was the Point race cheese company. And, um, I didn't know what homogenization was at all. Mm-hmm. And I asked, cause you know, you hear these words, homogenization, pasteurization. Right. And I just get, you know, I was getting them all confused. And so pasteurization, I had gotten down. That was the heating up of the milk to kill the bacteria. But homogenization was always a little bit more, uh, sort of mysterious to me because I had never seen unhomogenized milk. So basically homogenization is the process by which the milk is kind of put through a centrifuge. And, um, the fat globules in the milk are broken up so that they're the same size as the water molecules. And what that means is the milk does not separate into cream and skim. The milk stays intact as just, you know, a sort of uniform white fluid, Um, which, you know, was mainly done for cosmetic reasons. Um, But, uh, you know, unhomogenized milk that has that cream in it is just unbelievably rich and delicious and sort of, um, you know, like a milkshake all on its own.
2: Yeah, and um, even if it has the same total uh, percentage of butterfat as the whole milk in the supermarket, you know, the, the regular homogenized stuff, it has a creamier feeling as you take a mouthful and swallow it because you have that contrast of the... The creamy part that hasn't just been reduced to one uniform whole. The contrast of the creamy part with the leaner part. If you can taste, you taste these two different effects at once. Absolutely.
1: What, so what does it mean, like for, for Anne and I who grew up just drinking whatever milk from wherever store, what does it mean, what, what's the advantage of drinking besides that it tastes better and it's richer and are there like reasons to drink you know milk from small farms and unhomogenized?
2: Well I think that it is a good thing on the whole to encourage small dairies, small farms and small dairies. I think that it would be almost impossible to overstate how difficult. Um, farm a dairy farmer 's life is especially uh, the ones who produce milk for very, very large co ops or um, very large dairies they, they operate on just these cruelly thin profit margins if you 're an independent small farmer with um, your own small dairy or connected with a local small dairy, you have a little more financial leeway because people are willing to pay a somewhat higher price um, I have to I, I really should point out that in this country ha- we have incredibly cheap milk. Um, every time the price goes up ten cents a gallon, consumers scream, and I feel some sympathy for that, but at the same time, it's unrealistic to expect good tasting milk to be produced as cheaply um, as most of it is.
1: I think that's uh that's an excellent point, and it also brings it back to what you were talking about growing up with this landscape of farms. Um, pres- you know supporting this kind trying to seek out these kinds of milk producers also means that you're supporting a working landscape and a farming landscape in a country mm-hmm. that's exceed- that's becoming less and less of a farming country um in general though there are these pockets as Anne said of of kind of you know little revivals be it dairy or or other uh sort of uh small specialty farming mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much, Anne, for coming and being on the show. Unfortunately, we run out of time for the day, but um, we look forward. Uh, again, the title of Anne's book is Milk, the Surprising Story of Milk Through the Ages. And uh, it's Anne Mendelson. And if you get a chance to pick up a copy of this book, definitely do. It's a fascinating historical chronicle as well as an enticing cookbook. Who doesn't want to learn how to make their own yogurt? So thanks to everybody, and um, we'll see you again in two weeks.